Welcome to this Stroke Journey podcast, brought to you by the National Stroke Education Center at the University of Cincinnati, your premier source for comprehensive diagnostic and therapeutic stroke education from the pre-hospital and emergency settings through the ICU and rehabilitation. Please welcome today's host, Dr. Jordan Bonomo. Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm here today with Yui Stoltz, biostatistician extraordinaire. <laughs> Dr. Stoltz, for those who might not know who you are, could you give us just a brief background on yourself and tell us what you do? Sure. Um, I'm a research faculty in the Department of Emergency Medicine, and my background is I come from an epidemiology background in public health, and I've worked in uh, emergency department now um, doing research since 2008. And so I've done studies on everything from, you know, outcomes for traumatic brain injury, out of hospital cardiac arrest, and kind of a generalist like emergency medicine um, doctors. And uh, my specialty is observational studies and studies that basically require complicated statistics. Sometimes that's different from some of the big randomized controlled trials. They do all the hard work at the beginning, and then the statistics are simpler. But I tend to work in the world where our uh, enrollments aren't that clean. So I, I have to do a lot of adjusting and controlling and the back end of studies. Got it. If I were to tell you that I'm a clinician who does research who thinks that all statistics are complicated, would I be in the majority or minority of the people you work with? I, I think you're in the majority. I think every time I think something that I'm explaining is easy, like the odds ratio, I always sort of get like perplexed looks like, and I have to go through what what is the odds? What is an odds ratio? Why is it different than a risk ratio or a hazard ratio? And then the, the little glassy-eyed, like, yes, oh, right. oh, please, can you just explain right. it slower and one right. more time? Right. Well, which one is better, right? And so... As someone who's a consumer of data and right. statistical analyses um, that sophisticated brains like yours put out there, I appreciate what you do, and I appreciate you making it accessible to guys like me. And that's actually what I wanted to talk to you about today in the context of acute stroke trialing. This is a big question. Um, and it's, it's intentionally vague because I want to hear what you have to say about it. When we look at clinical stroke trials, it's hard for many of us to interpret the data meaningfully. We look at differences between odds ratios, and we know that there's the global statistic in the original NINS trial, and modified rank and scoring, and sliding dichotomies, and on and on. And it seems that they get more and more complicated, perhaps not less, depending upon the complexity of the trial design itself. I'm going to ask you the big question. If you are educating, which you are right now, clinicians caring for stroke patients, and you're educating them about the pitfalls in statistical interpretation in clinical trials and stroke, what do they have to look out for? Where are the cognitive errors and biases that they can fall victim to while trying to interpret these data the right way for their patients? Yeah, I would say there's a couple of things to, to look look for. Um, I mean, the most important things I would say are functional outcomes. So that's why the modified Rankin scale and the Barthel index and um, such indices are, are useful because they're talking about functional outcomes because that's what you care most about. But the problem with functional outcomes at 90 days is that you are so far removed from the treatment that there could be other things intervening before you get to the outcome. And so that's one of the big I don't, wouldn't say criticisms, but that's certainly one of the big qualifications for 90-day outcomes in any field of study is because you usually have somebody that has a stroke will also have other comorbidities. And those comorbidities can contribute to quality of life or other things later. And so I think 
making sure that the researchers have done a really good job in tracking a patient over those 90 days to make sure they don't have other problems going on and controlling for those initial prognostic factors that we know have a huge impact, like, you know, diabetes and hypertension and all those other things. And so I would say that to be skeptical of any results, you know, that seem just too wonderful to be true, because usually what happens is people do their power analyses given an expected outcome, right? And so if you see something that's really really better than it should be, that probably is telling you that there might be some skew. So other than, you know, other than those things, I think uh, making sure that you understand how patients were enrolled in the pathway into the study is also really important. I think we sort of take for granted that people just magically get enrolled and there's this in black box in the emergency department where clinicians enroll people and then they've done a you know, they've done a good job, but um, I think there can be biases in enrollment. You know, there's been a reanalysis of one of the big studies, and they found that they actually didn't do a good job of, they did a good job of randomizing, but randomizing just simply means that you're, you're allowing chance to take care of distributing those prognostic factors between groups. And a lot of times that's true, but sometimes it's not true. I used to have a teacher um, when I was uh, getting my page, and she used to say, once randomized, always analyzed. And the idea is that once you randomize, everyone all of a sudden, you know, relaxes and says, well, now the hard work was done and now we just report the results. But it turns out that's not necessarily the case. So you kind of have to always be very careful with the data. So does that make sense? At to- yeah, absolutely. Okay. And, and that sounds like a, a pretty nice aphorism that I've heard from a teacher. So if I get it right, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it sounded like once randomized, always analyzed. You have to include them in your data set. Is that dissimilar to an intention to treat analysis? So the way that it is, it is the intention to treat, but it's it was kind of used um, slightly pejoratively in that once it's randomized, you have sort of, you've achieved the holy grail of your study and you know that nothing else could possibly be, or, or there couldn't be any problems because you've, you've randomized appropriately. And so, so intention to treat is exactly that. Once you have randomized into a group, you should always assume that that person got the treatment and that prevents biases. It can go both ways. So usually an intention to treat is designed to not allow the researchers later to cherry pick maybe who they can move out of a treatment group into another group based on what they got. And, and usually it's designed so that it biases your outcome to the null hypothesis, but it could also intention to treat, it can under certain conditions bias it toward, you know, the alternative hypothesis. And so I think you just have to be really careful, which is why I think that per protocol and the sensitivity analyses are all super important. And I, and I wouldn't take those for granted at all. Like, oh, they just did this, you know, for the heck of it. I, I think it's really important to see how sensitive the outcomes are based on some of the assumptions. So I'm hearing that randomization is critical doesn't always necessarily mean that there's appropriate balancing in a trial, despite Correct. best efforts. Especially when there's low, like when there's relatively low sample sizes. Like if you flip a coin a hundred times and you were to plot that distribution on a chalkboard, some of those times you would hit a 40-60 and some of those times you'd hit a 35-65. That's, that's chance. And if that happens to be your study that it's a 35-65, well then you didn't, or clearly didn't get a 50-50 split, right? So then in your mind, when you look at big picture clinical trialing, when we talk about stroke trials with five and 600 patients in it, 
that seems like a smaller sample size perhaps than what it might actually take to truly randomize and balance. So you have to pay attention to those adjustments if necessary. Yeah. So, you know, what's really hard in these trials is that you can maybe at most do three arms. If you do more than three arms, you basically don't have the power and the budget. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, you know, some of the adaptive trials like, you know, uh, Dr. Dayway that was just here, his, his, his study is an adaptive trial. And that's realizing that we may actually not know the best possible concentrations or treatment arms and that it's better to maybe sort of see where the data lead us and then form those groups later. Whereas if you do them ahead of time and you happen to be wrong, then, you know, you just didn't have the power for that. Right. So you, you've burned your sample size, you've burned your budget you, and you're you, done. You, you're done. Right. And you just, you can't, you can't do five at a time. Sure. Like you don't have the budget sure. and it's probably not ethical. Yeah, it might not be ethical. So this is actually a really interesting thing. So adaptive trial design is coming. It's here for guys like you. It's coming for guys like me. From an interpreter standpoint, though, many of us look at adaptive trial design with a bit of a blank stare, right? We get it. Conceptually, it makes sense. So you're right. going to adapt your trial as you go along. For the average clinician trying to understand clinical trial data, in stroke in particular, can you talk to us for about 30 seconds or a minute on adaptive trial design and what it looks like? What, what are we really doing? Yeah, so adaptive trials basically come from a Bayesian statistical analysis. And ba when, you, when you use the phrase Bayesian... I, I see your smile right now because you said Bayesian and you know exactly what happened. And there's this, like, this glaze that comes over. And I'm, I'm not a Bayesian. I'm a, you know, I'm a good old-fashioned good old statistician that doesn't necessarily deal in, in priors and all that good stuff. But basically the idea is that if you don't know the, the best concentration of a drug that balances risk and benefit, then, you know, you have to do a bunch of preclinical trials, but even then you, you, you just may not be able to find the best concentration. So in an adaptive trial, you kind of do your best to create a lot of categories and you start enrolling people into the trial. And then based on, you know, Bayesian statistics, you kind of have an idea of what you might find, like the low concentration probably shouldn't have an impact and they probably shouldn't have very many negative outcomes and the higher concentrations might have a benefit but you got to watch out for the negative outcomes and then they use uh, simulations to sort of figure out maybe what they expect to see and then when they start enrolling you kind of have to analyze the data so you actually can't be blinded to the results mm -hmm. or else you can't figure out which one of the groups, or, or maybe you can be blinded, but you, you have an idea because eventually you have to, you know, figure out what concentrations you want to give to people or when the timing of a drug is or how often a drug is given or any host of interventions, right? So if I'm, if I'm distilling this, I'm hearing that your description is effectively intentionally instilling bias towards positive outcomes. So the more positive effect you see that you were anticipating, the more you enrich that patient group. Exactly hoping to get a more the, guess, definitive answer. You get a better effect size. You yeah. get a divergence in effect size. Um, and is that the future, you think, in clinical trialing and stroke? I, I, think it, I think there's a place for it. I think a lot of trials and maybe even pilot studies might go to it because without a range of sort of interventions, you always get stuck in doing what everybody in the past did. It's the same way with outcomes, right? Like everybody uses the modified Rankin because everybody uses the modified Rankin. And so if you are the one that uses a new outcome measure, even if you validated it, everyone wants to compare it to what happened 10 years ago, and they can't. So then you have to do the modified ranking and your outcome, and then compare that to your outcome. And so 
you know, the adaptive trials sort of don't necessarily bind you to what previous researchers have done so that you can compare it directly because you can, you can kind of branch out and maybe try some newer concentrations or some other methods that people have theorized or hypothesized about, but they just, they don't have the arms to do it in their trial. And so it, it, it's, a, it's a good point. You kind of do, you're kind of hedging your bet. And then if you start seeing trends, you're more likely to believe those trends. And I think that's where the simulations come in. If the simulations assume or predict that you might see a better result and you see a better result, that's sort of where the, the prior comes mm -hmm. in. And if that matches what you see, then there's, then there's more evidence for that. And you kind of go down that path. It seems like there might be a, an ethical argument for some of these adaptive trial designs in high-risk trials, something like stroke, which is a time to then a process with a lot of potential harm and exquisite benefit if done appropriately for your patients. Listen, if, if, we, if you knew the outcome, you wouldn't need to, to research, track, right? right? And so that's the, oh, that's, that's, the whole, that's the whole point of it. If, if you were so sure that an IRB wouldn't allow it, then you couldn't do it. But clearly, because you don't know the range that they say this is probably the best way to do it and puts the fewest number of people at harm... So you're not running into, at six months, you have a data, data safety monitoring board, unblind, look at it, and you're, you've gone farther than you probably sure. should have, right? Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. So let me wrap this up with a, a question. Let's say that I'm your friendly neighborhood emergency physician, and I'm reading a new manuscript mm -hmm. about a clinical trial and stroke. And I do the thing which you've effectively admonished us to do just now, which is actually read the statistical plan. Not just skip over it and read to the conclusions, but do what they taught us. Right right, in our original journal clubs and all those things to read it. What are the buzzwords? What are the red flags? What do I look at that sort of piques my attention and gets me a little nervous that they might not have done this right? One of the things that, that people are doing more and more with outcomes is that they're not using dichotomous outcomes. Dichotomous outcomes were really prevalent 10, 15 years ago. And now people are starting to use a continuous outcome more. They're using all the data that they have as opposed to just arbitrarily, not arbitrarily, but saying modified ranking of one or zero is was what I want to look at, whereas some patients might think a two or a three is acceptable, mm -hmm. even clinicians. So I would say look at the outcome variable. That would be one major thing. And then I would say, you know, look at the enrollments and look at the table one and see if they did anything to explain potential differences between the groups. And if they didn't, then I would go back to like our conversation about the intention to treat and randomization that, you know, you gotta do more than just necessarily report crude results. You gotta maybe use some kind of adjustments. And I would also say that there should be multiple sensitivity analyses. Um, All right, you're gonna have to expand on the multiple sensitivity analysis. What do you mean by that? So sensitivity analysis basically says, it, they're sort of like the what ifs. Okay. And so um, I think I, I talked about in a po podcast, the fragility index, right? Yeah, the fragility yeah. index basically says, if you get a positive result, what if you rewind it and basically start converting people that had a good outcome into a bad outcome and see how many people would you have to change back before you lost statistical significance? And so if that was one or two, you know, that might tell you like, hey, this could have gone either way. And I'm now being asked to like change practice because two patients in a study that I don't know, you know, is, is that right? And what would I have done if it was... P equals 0.51. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one type of sensitivity analysis. The other part is like the per protocol, right? Is saying you did your intention to treat, but you know there was treatment failures. You you know that people withdrew and might have gotten the opposite treatment. And so how can you 
potentially correct for that to sort of account for that. And that's, you know, the, the worry is that you're going to let researchers sort of chop up the data and move people around to sort of fit up, you know, I don't know, a predetermined outcome. But I would say that if you're planning your study right, you should have already thought about those ahead of time. And I, and I guess one of the things that's really useful is actually seeing what people have reported and what people said they were going to report. And so there's always a paper that for these big trials that usually lays out their methods because nobody wants to publish half of a paper of methods and half of a paper of outcomes. So a lot of times you can't even look at the methods. I, I ran into this when I was looking at the literature. I would look up thaws and then they would say, oh, this is reported elsewhere. And so you'd look back at this paper that was published maybe a year or two years ago. So a lot of times it's really hard to actually look at the statistical analysis and the plan because you're taking, you're taking basically the word of the reviewers that they did everything right. That they followed their plan, which right. they published 18 months ago. 18 months ago. And right. so, you know, and then usually these things have to be registered on clinicaltrials.gov and they'll have the primary outcomes, secondary outcomes, and if they have more there. So I would say really if the primary outcome gets the most attention and then there's sort of some suggestions of secondary outcomes, I feel like that's that's fine. But if if ever secondary outcomes sort of are, I don't know, get a lot more attention yeah. and press, then I would say that you should be cautious about that. That's interesting. So if those secondary outcomes are bubbling to the top as the most important findings in the trial, it almost sounds like you're suggesting trust but verify. Go back to clinicaltrials.gov, maybe look at that first paper about their stats and ask if they actually did what they said they were going to do. Yeah. If not, that, that raises some red flags about uh, the potential veracity of their, their findings. Yeah, I, mean, I think that's interesting. That's really new. I, I don't know that a lot of us listening to you share that would, would think about that as a standard strategy, but that makes a tremendous amount of sense. Yeah. I mean, it, it's possible that a reviewer asked for another analysis. And then, of course, they would have done the other analysis, but it wasn't the primary analysis. Got it. And, and that could be good and bad, right? So that could be, you know, you never see what the reviewer suggests. All you see is the final product. Sure. But, um, you know, depending on who that reviewer is, yeah. they could have made either great suggestions or a suggestion that they, that they felt like might have taken it into a, you know, different direction. I, I guess I think trust but verifies is just pretty much the hallmark of science, but, you know. Especially statistics. Right. All right. And, and consistent results over time are sort of like the benchmark of why you should change your practice. Sure. You should never do it with one paper or really? even two papers. You should, just shouldn't do it. How many does it take? You know, the pyramid of evidence-based medicine uh -huh. at the top, it, it has meta-analyses and systematic reviews of clinical trials, right? So Can't do a meta-analysis with one paper. You can't. Um, and I would say even multi-center trials aren't necessarily always the end all. One good multi-center trial in North America of academic medical centers that are in maybe, I don't know, Cincinnati, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, Detroit, and Chicago, that's pretty good. But that's not necessarily representative of the United States. Sure. Right? No, we're seeing that. And sure. then you, you kind of have people cluster, I think, based on their relationships. And so maybe you want to look at what the Europeans found or, you know, even what they found in Asia. So, again, that's a, a nice pitfall that you identified, which is the applicability of data to the patient population you're actually treating. So what academic centers produce may not be applicable to your potentially rural institution or, or another. That's really helpful. So... I really appreciate you spending the time talking to us about the, the pitfalls in statistics and stroke trialing. And we even got into maybe not just stroke trialing, but bigger stuff in adaptive trial design. I really appreciate that. I have a personal question for you. As a biostatistician who lives and breathes stats, what's your favorite stat? 
my favorite statistic. Yeah, what is it? I, th- I think it's the odds ratio. Okay. Um, Why? The odds ratio is great because logistic regression is really super flexible. And so when you report the odds ratio and you say the odds ratio is two, right, that means you've doubled your odds. But you can also say the, the converse of that is you have basically reduced your odds by 50%. Whereas when you're talking about the relative risk and hazard ratios, it's very directional. And so you, you aren't as flexible with going back and forth. Yeah, so thinking in terms of odds is better because it kind of talks about kind of like relative probabilities. And I feel like when people start talking about the risk, relative risk, they're very absolute. But, you know, unless you have the perfect cohort study that measures the risk of a person, like you always have to qualify all of it and saying, did you control for this or did you control for that? So anyway. But you think the odds ratio is cleaner? I like the odds ratio, but but the odds ratio is harder to interpret for clinicians. And so mm-hmm. then it's always sort of... Right, so we revert to something else. Back yeah. calculated into yeah. a hazard ratio. And, um, you know, I, it could have been different if somebody had just started with odds and patients now understood odds the way they understood risk, you know. Or blackjack. Exactly. Right. There's a reason why, you know, the multi-billion dollar industry uses odds instead of Hazard. absolute probability, <laughs> right? So, Well, Dr. Stoltz, I really appreciate your time. I learned a bunch. I'm sure everyone listening did too. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening today. This Stroke Journey podcast is a collaboration between the National Stroke Education Center, MCRAIG International, and MedEd On The Go. For more comprehensive, high-quality educational resources for healthcare professionals, please visit strokejourney.com.